I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone and welcome to History in Technicolor. This is David here, and I'm Wolf. It's Wolf's Week this week, and this week, Wolf, you That's are bringing... not a tongue twister at all. It is. Not. Yes, it's Wolf's Week. This carry on. It's uh, what are you bringing this week? Uh, the film that I've chosen to bring today is the Charge of the Light Brigade from 1968. Very good. Before we start that, should we have a public announcement about you and your relationship with Led Zeppelin? Okay, as this has been brought up, <laughs> I think it should be clear. I think what's happened is you mentioned Led Zeppelin and you mentioned that Robert Plant is the greatest musician of all time and I ignored you because... Why did you? Anyway, yes. I mean, it's an obvious reason why I would ignore you making a statement like that (laughs) but um, just to address it, Robert Plant is a very good musician but he is not the greatest musician of all time. I So, goodbye, Wolf. Off you go, sorry. Why are you choosing Charge of the Light Brigade? I've selected this movie because I was interested in the history. I was intrigued by the cast. Uh, I was particularly fascinated by the fact that I had never seen the film, nor seen sections of it on television in passing. I was mostly unaware of it. And yet it had everything in it to be the movie that I should be hearing about. Like, I should be aware of this, and I just wondered why. And then just as a side note, I was at an Iron Maiden concert a few weeks ago, greatest band in the world (laughs) just throw that out there and you have to ignore that and I realised that the gods had spoken to me they speak through Iron Maiden the Klansman played and it's it's about William Wallace so I was like Braveheart which Uh I knew we were doing and then the very next song the Trooper played and it was about the Charge of the Light Brigade I thought what are the chances I've been thinking about doing it I had to follow they're both linked anyway Charge of the Light Brigade, made in 1968 directed by Tony Richardson who had a background making films like A Taste of Honey Uh, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, Look Back in Anger, Uh, obviously mostly based on plays or novels, usually associated with kind of kitchen sink drama, social realism. John Osborne actually was uncredited on a very early draft of this script, 
So that kind of gives you some idea about maybe the approach that he's going to have to this and that it's perhaps not the same as everyone else. It's obviously about the infamous Charge of the Light Brigade, which took place on October 25th, 1854, at the Battle of Balaclava during the Crimean War, when 658 men charged a series of Russian artillery positions based off of a, a misinterpreted order. The news returned to England three weeks later. The country was outraged, apparently all the way up to the Queen. Um, Alfred Lord Tennyson read the story in the paper the, that day. Within a few minutes, he'd put pen to paper and he composed the now famous poem that we probably are all Into aware the of. Valley of Death. Okay. The one that we will... We will do later, yeah. Do perfectly. Perfectly. The greatest rendition ever of ever. at the end of yeah. this show. Great Stay Robert tuned. Trump. Okay, what is the film? Well, it's the tone of the film. It's an anti-war movie half of the time and the other half of the time it's a satirical black comedy of sorts. And it kind of cuts between the two. Uh, I've seen the phrase tragic farce, and I think that actually that's a really fitting definition for kind of the feel of the film. A key thing to note is that it uses punch cartoons. Punch magazine is a British magazine uh, that was kind of a weekly magazine about humour and satire, and it came out in 1841, and it ran for close-ish to 200 years. Obviously, the purpose was satirical, so that kind of plays into how that features in the movie and the kind of black comedy of it. Can't have been 200 years, can it? it what did it go to? Two, 2002? 2041. Sorry. That's right. For a satirical, ma- for a satirical magazine to run for 160 <laughs> years, okay. to, to not give them the credit of saying, yeah. oh, roughly 200 okay. years. You're absolutely right. Fair enough. You're like, they weren't good enough to go for the full 200. <laughs> they crashed out in 2002 God, after pathetic. being... Part-time is... It just uh, a good way to describe kind of the feel of the movie is that all the toffs say stuff like "Are you fond of whiting?" <laughs> and all of the poor people are covered in mud and obsessed with drinking. And this full metal jacket style kind of training footage of them covered in blood, being forced to do things they don't want to do by these commanding officers, who occasionally say stuff like "Russians." <laughs> Who are the characters? Okay, so we've got Captain Nolan, who is probably our main character. Nolan was a horseman and a military technician. He was very well educated, and he studied kind of the the war with cavalry and different ways that you could fight with them, different ways that you could ride. Uh, He created a new saddle, which should change slightly the way that you would ride a horse and take it into battle and it was later implemented by the British Army so he knows what he's doing Mm. Uh, he fought in India and then he came back and then obviously goes on to be in the Crimea and he is the first casualty of the charge killed by one of the first if not the first shells that that lands then you have Lord Cardigan does that count as a plot spoiler by the way I guess but it happened in 18... 54, so... Okay, fair enough. Maybe people might know about that by now. Might have got to hear about it by now. (laughs) Uh, Lord Cardigan, he was the commander of the Light Brigade. That was the role that he was assigned. He's a brash kind of uh, what-what type man, uh, over-the-top military. Uh, He loves lashings and champagne, and he has a booming voice and um, rose steadily through the ranks, possibly due to the fact that he had wealth. Uh, Then you have Lord Raglan, who was the commander of the British, British forces. Uh, He previously fought in the Peninsular War and the Hundred Days. He served alongside Wellington throughout, uh, sometimes worked as his military secretary, uh, and then he fought in Waterloo where he lost his arm, which apparently he asked to be given back to him because his (laughs) wife's wedding ring was on there and he needed to uh, retrieve it. Cool. Some for But yes, he kind of did all of the big battles. He was out there kind of doing everything you could think of. 
Um, and then you have Lord Lucan, who was the cavalry commander. He's responsible for the Light Brigade, as well as for the Heavy Brigade. When the movie came out, uh, it received mostly positive reviews, but it mostly flopped. Uh, a lot of this is to do with its portrayals of some of the characters, specifically Captain Nolan, making him a hero, and Mrs. Dorbley... She gets up to some stuff which most likely didn't happen and people have taken uh, an issue with that. I also would assume that the unusual nature of the tone of the movie and its direction and style did not make it conducive to a box office success. The bite is too critical. Yes. What actually happened? Like, in detail, how did this event take place? A conflict arises between the Russians and the Ottoman Empire. Due to religious reasons the Roman Catholics versus the Orthodox Church, uh, in simple terms. Britain and France do not want Russia to gain power by taking the Ottoman Empire, and the specific fear that the passage to India will be affected. If Russia were to gain strongholds, take over, then potentially they could look to broaden their empire. So really for our own means, Britain and France wanted to kind of keep Russia at bay, but disguised it as helping the poor Turks. So, 658 men. Just to give you the, kind of the details, after the charge, 110 men had died, 180 were wounded or captured, and 470 horses were dead. Just to kind of throw those numbers out there early on. So, they are trying to besiege Sebastopol, and this is one of the key battles that's going to lead them to kind of take that key point. During the events that have taken place prior, the Russians have started taking some of the British guns away. Lord Raglan decides that they need to send the cavalry, who haven't really done much up until this point, to essentially defeat this kind of smaller section of the Russian army and bring the guns back. Down a slightly different valley, you have a series of Russian artillery emplacements. They're on the left of the valley, the right of the valley, and kind of the end of the valley. Orders are sent down to the front line to Lord Lucan, who is the cavalry commander, but they seem to not be followed at first. There seems to be some confusion. Um, there's also quite a few, quite a lot of infighting between Lord Lucan and Lord Cardigan, who are brothers-in-law and really don't like each other, and they have had uh, beef for many years. And they're really not too pleased about working yeah. together. So the orders keep going back and forth, and there's some confusion over them and implementing them. Captain Nolan is frustrated by his seniors and everything that's kind of taken place. And he decides he's going to carry down the kind of the final once and for all order personally and deliver it to Lord Lucan. So Lord Raglan makes this decision. He says, we need to go after those guns. We need to stop them being taken, send in the light brigade. And we need to do it immediately. Captain Nolan goes down and he delivers the information, and this is kind of where the error starts to take place. Either he delivers it and it's misinterpreted, um, or he consciously alters it, or again, possibly Lord Lucan um, makes his own decision, or maybe the instructions itself are not that clear. But they seem to be, if you read them. Mm. It does seem to be clear that they want to retrieve the guns. Yeah. Captain Nolan is supposed to have also kind of signalled down the valley in a very general direction that they need to go and they need to go now and they need to take out the guns. He's not specific. Lord Lucan says, Lord Cardigan, you need to begin the assault, essentially start the charge. And this kind of mile-long charge slowly begins to take place, which at first you wouldn't, maybe wouldn't, they don't notice from the higher-up positions that it's going wrong. Also, you can't really call it back at this point. Lord Cardigan knows, and Lord Lucan, both know this is the wrong thing they've been told to do, don't they? 
Well, so in the film, yes, it appears that they, they both know it's the wrong decision, which is why Lord Lucan hasn't been doing it. In real life, you would assume that they all know. It's regularly talked about that it's against war protocol. Right, and they do it anyway. Lord Cardigan does it because it's an order. Apparently this leads to a general increased belief that obedience is the greatest asset in, right. the, in the military. Right. So I've read some things which suggest that prior to this, maybe obedience was not as high on the agenda as right. we thought. But down the line, it's kind of more drilled in. Mm. So, the charge begins. It has to kind of build up some pace. And they have about a mile to go. So they're moving towards these Russian guns. And then, obviously, as the charge gets going, they have to head down the valley. And the guns are firing from the left, and the guns are firing from the right. And then the guns start firing from ahead. So you've got these 658 men. The cannons are hitting them. Captain Nolan is the first to die. Mm -hmm. He runs out ahead of Lord Cardigan and is screaming as if he's perhaps inspiring the troops to follow after him. He does come across Lord Cardigan, and that's kind of where he perishes. And we will talk in a minute about whether we think that he is doing that because he's trying to kind of lead them into battle, or whether he has realised they made an error and he's trying to correct. The movie kind of has one idea, and historians have others, perhaps. Um, Essentially... They charge these guns. You shouldn't charge these gun yeah. emplacements. They suffer quite a lot of casualties on the way, but based on the numbers that I've showed you, not as many as we would perhaps think. They make it to the gun emplacements and they take out one of the uh, the, the artillery guns, I believe. And they're actually relatively successful once they've made it to the guns, mm-hmm. so they're protected from the, the charge, and suddenly the troops weren't expecting this to happen. Mm-hmm. So the cavalry has kind of the upper, upper hand there. But then the Russians send in their kind of their cavalry, heavy cavalry, and afterwards to pursue them, and they have to turn and go back down the valley. The guns start firing again, hitting their own men. The casualties are even worse. As you, if 470 horses went down, by the end, most people are running, I would assume. Mm. And kind of the charge comes back. A lot of people wounded and captured. A lot of people left on the battlefield, like hundreds dead. Mm. And it was essentially viewed as a tragedy. Mm. And it was essentially a, a blunder. A miscommunication, Lord Raglan did not want this to happen. It happened, and now they kind of have to deal with the consequences and continue the war. How does the film kind of portray all of these events and the people? Uh, well, first of all, it's clear that it, the film sets up Nolan as a hero. Right. Um, maybe he's not your average hero, and he certainly has some negative qualities to him, but he's essentially kind of our, our feed through the film. We follow him throughout and we're, lots of scenarios are played out so that we feel sympathy for him and that we're on his side and then they clearly set up Lord Cardigan in particular as this villain mm. and they're obviously those two characters are completely opposed so that's kind of how we're going to make our way through this David Hemmings plays Captain Nolan and he's pretty good I wouldn't say I'm a massive David Hemmings fan I don't okay. know enough of his work but he's, he's pretty good in the role and it, and it seems to go quite well He's maybe not that likeable, and he has this kind of romance which isn't really doing very much, and he maybe doesn't treat uh, Vanessa Redgraves that great, and he's definitely betraying his friends, so this is all unusual as he's the hero, but there you go. And when he is physically leading them into battle, and he's kind of making all these charges, the movie definitely seems to suggest that he is responsible for making these errors. Precisely odd hero, isn't he? Because... Um, I found he was quite equivocal, and I, it confused me. I'm a simple person. I wanted to know who the goody was. And given what you just said about whose fault was it, 
it wasn't at all clear to me whether the film was saying, ah, he tried to put right the mistake he'd made or whether he caused the mistake. It left that very ambivalent. I definitely think that in the movie, there's no there's no possible indication, even in the hour and a half, whatever that's come before, as to why he kind of does what he does. Yeah. It seems to happen rashly. Yeah. Uh, for no real reason, that he kind of runs down, and it's unclear why he's yeah. making this He's charge. built him up as this character who knows what he's talking about, is discriminated against because he's been in India, because he's got practical skills, so he's kind of building him up as an expert, and then suddenly he does this rather daft, wild thing. It just doesn't... They never. It's never convincing as to why he should act as he did. And not only is it not convincing there, it's perhaps not convincing in his death. When he's kind of given this moment of um, perhaps forgiveness or understanding, he seems to try to move the army in the correct direction when he realises what's gone wrong, but he dies before he can kind of move everybody out of the way yeah. and he's the first to perish, which is obviously true. It, that representation, especially when it comes to the the fault at the end, is it's definitely unusual and I don't yeah. know if it's successful. Uh, contemporary accounts blame Nolan for communicating the order incorrectly, uh, deliberately or accidentally, some modern historians blame Lord Raglan and Lord Lucan more. It's not. I'm not sure if it's yeah. clear in this movie who we really blame, but yeah. that is something else. Lord Cardigan, played by Trevor Howard. Obviously, we've said he's the he's the villain. He's uh, racist most of the time. He's out of control. Uh, he seems idiotic. Captain Nolan, since he's the opposition to Captain Nolan, Captain Nolan says that there are too many people who've been who've bought their way into the military ranks. So it would be a suggestion that he personally believes Lord Cardigan is somebody who's kind of risen to power purely because of his station in life, yeah. rather than any skills or knowledge yes. or anything. He seems to have no human compassion. Yeah. He's a buffoon, isn't he? The whole way through the movie, and it seemed to me the only thing that was redemptive about him was the extraordinary bravery with which he went into the charge, did what he was told to do, and brought the men out again at the end. That was the only his redeeming feature, as it were. Which happened. He 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 did that, and he came back, and he returned to England sometime later on, and he got promoted because, essentially, he took no blame for it because mm. he just followed orders, mm. and everything worked out very well for him. Supposedly, he was quite loved by his men. Right, which you wouldn't think from the film. Which you wouldn't think. In the movie, he seems hated by everybody. Yeah. He tries to get... He tries to make people be spies against Captain Nolan, yeah. and then when they say, Captain Nolan's too good a man, I can't be a spy... Then they, then they like, ruin their careers, yeah. lead some floggings. Beat them to a pulp and then ruin their career, yeah. He has this fabulous moustache, though. He does have a fabulous moustache. The hair is... Uh, the hair of the movie, is that historical? That's what I need to know. I mean, there's a lot of hair in this movie of various kinds. A Too much hair. hair. Too much hair. There couldn't be any more hair. They should have made this movie hair. <laughs> and then, OK, we've got uh, John Gielgud playing Lord Raglan. He's kind of presented with a little bit more respect... He seems to be a more reasoned character. He seems to really dislike a lot of what Lord Cardigan is doing. And there's all these people running around being kind of really over the top and brash. And he keeps telling them to be quiet. Like, he's really not interested in a lot of that. But I do think it kind of presents him as being a little bit out of touch. Yeah. He seems to be more connected with the people who remember Waterloo as that great war. Um, and obviously, years have passed since then. He's not an idiot, and he definitely seems to understand military strategy but he also is quite a frail old man and actually in i think he died about a year later mm. and most of this campaign was a, a failure for him yeah and at the end when he chooses to throw his like right hand man under the bus so yes. to speak, or under the horse 
I thought that was unfair of the movie, actually. he In the movie, as you say, he blames the guy taking his orders, Airy, I think his name is. And I don't think that's ever historically something that I've seen somebody say actually happens. No, uh, the the line is, uh, Lord Lucan says, I have your written instructions, this is your order. And then he picks it up and reads it and he goes, oh, but this isn't my handwriting. This can't be my order. Even though we all know that's ludicrous. Lord Raglan is blamed by many people to some extent. Obviously, he gives the yeah. order. Do you think, then, that the movie kind of has to do an about turn at the end, where it doesn't set him up enough as a character to sh- so that when they get to the end and they're like, who's at fault, and they include him in there, that they haven't done the building to get to that point? I just Yes, I just felt, got the impression that Tony Richardson is desperate to pack as much into this movie, which is anti-war, but mainly it's a social comment about the idiocy of the folks at the top and the bravery of the folks at the bottom. And that he adds this in, he just chucks this extra bit in, in a way that's very unfair to both the character and then the memory of the character. He didn't need to do this, and it's never been suggested that it actually happened. No, it is definitely really odd, and it's almost the last line in the movie. Yeah. I do think it's interesting that if Lord Raglan is kind of the voice of reason to some extent, that they are making that commentary on his position in the military in general. He's not as, nowhere near as crazy as Lord Cardigan, yeah. and yet he is still sending them off to war, and he thinks that they should go, they should stop Russia getting a foothold yeah. in Europe more, they should stop them gaining power, and yeah. they should... And he comes up with all these fake reasons for protecting the Queen and protecting glory... Uh, but really, we know it's all about the passage to India yeah. and other related stuff, and he doesn't care about the Turks, and he's really flippant about them. So yeah. he ha- does have these negative qualities, and I do think yeah. it's important for us to note that. But John Gill looks great. Performance is really good. So what do you think of it as a film? Very quickly, I think the charge is portrayed relatively accurately, except for the fact that, obviously, um, seemingly no men return alive. Yeah. They're all crawling and dying. Yeah. There's... There, there aren't sort of 200 cavalry riders who return and there definitely aren't a further 200 walking and wounded. Um, the movie ends with all these like flies over the score and complete like desolation. That is not really accurate, but it does yeah. probably portray um, our, an, an impression of the event. So it's relatively accurate in terms of, in terms of the battle strategy, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and the, the cause of the charge being this confusion and their fighting... That that kind of works, and that definitely comes across in the movie. Um, is the movie good? Yes, is the, is the movie any good? The film was aimed to be brutally authentic, mm. uh, and it was based on research in Cecil Woodham Smith's 1953 book, The Reason Why. So historians have kind of studied this and discussed reasons, and they've kind of used that. And it's made during the Vietnam War, and some people have suggested mm. that it is a political commentary on continued interventions in other lands and foreign conflicts. Um, so I do think that's important to recognise. If I'm being truthfully honest, I didn't enjoy it that much. I think it's very interesting, um, and I think there's lots to discuss, as we've already found, and it's very unusual. But is it inherently entertaining and enjoyable? Probably not. What do you think of all the cartoons, then? I mean, I really didn't like them. Right. They broke the film up too much for me, and I was almost I was certain that they were budgetary reasons. How do we show them travelling from England to Crimea? Let's do it in cartoon form and do it by map. Right. It's like when the Muppets travel by map. <laughs> I, I must admit, I was a little bit more tolerant towards them. I agree they're very incongruous in this movie. But if you took them out and saw them separately, 
they're quite interesting. They're very innovative. It's very different. It kind of feels like an experiment that sort of fails, but nonetheless, in themselves, they're rather good. It's a lovely thing where Victoria lifts her skirts and all these boats come out from underneath it. Um, the bit where they've got is boats. that historically accurate, David? <laughs> you, you might Victoria. know more than me. Well, probably in a British British imperialism, probably might have represented Queen Victoria as giving birth to this great empire, sort of thing. They've got boats going on people's heads on them, haven't they? And they're very satirical. They're yes. very clearly saying this British imperialism stuff is really stupid, isn't it? And it's pompous and it's um, hollow. And it really helps that wider um, critique of imperialism as opposed to the more detailed critique of the social thing that's going on between idiot leaders, brave, poorly led. It's definitely really good at reminding me that is it is a satirical movie because every five or ten minutes it has to remind you that it's a mock kind of different movies. So they're all playing cricket on the battlefields. Uh, what, what, ah, yes. <laughs> Jolly good show. And then there's men being amputated right next to them, yeah. almost. Yeah. Screaming in pain, blood everywhere, yeah. not enough resources. Yeah. Florence Nightingale has yet to arrive. He does this all the way through the movie, does it? He does, he does a very clear cut away from... A posh bit to a brutal bit. A posh bit to a brutal bit. They're having a lovely time in the mess. They're drink, being forced to drink champagne. And next moment, they're in a training ground and there's, the ordinary person has blood coming out from their from their legs because of the brutality of the training. At the beginning, the opening credits, there's this ironic voiceover about how fantastic the British Empire is to give industry to the world. And it's read over a bit where you've got these almost subhuman-type figures dragging up coal from under the earth. He hits you over the head constantly with the message. And for me, just every time they happened, it was such a shock to see one of the cartoons come up, um, especially because sometimes the scene before was really serious, that it just it kept pulling me out of it yeah. more than yeah. drawing me in. But I do appreciate they're done really well. Yeah. You mentioned the romance thing. Awful. I mean, it was just pointless. Why are you doing this? And also, it took a, detracted from the quality of Nolan as a hero because you thought you've treated this woman really badly why am I going to think you're great you know it, and it makes the movie longer and it makes the movie very long it easily adds another 10 minutes which it does not need how accurate is this um, essentially the movie is fairly accurate uh, the battle seems to make sense the confusions and the shifting blame are correct the reporter was there you can see that they're putting in those extra details um, uh, yes, that was quite interesting that they had... They made quite a play about the reporters being there, and famously, of course, the Crimean War is the first war that was that had pictures sent back. Tolstoy was there, wasn't he? Tolstoy is described as the first ever war reporter, because oh, really? he was there on the Russian side, apparently. Fascinating. Um, so, yes, they, they put all these little details in. Uh, they're kind of expanding on everything. Uh, a lot of the events take place. Uh, some of the inaccuracies... For example, there's a key scene with a, a black bottle where he's drinking a porter in the mess hall when everyone should be drinking champagne. That's Nolan, yeah? No, yeah, Nolan's drinking this bottle and he essentially is arrested for refusing to kind of follow the rules and it just kind of broadens his battle between him yeah. and Cardigan. That didn't happen to Nolan, but it did happen exactly like right. that to a man named Reynolds. So, yes, they've adjusted some things, but a lot of those kind of events were taking place. So I do think that the historical accuracy and the realism mm. in there is correct. Yeah but it's kind of used to a purpose, and that's to make Nolan maybe more sympathetic than he perhaps should be, right. which is an overall interpretation of the event. Mm. I really think that they want to put the blame on the commanders rather than 
the men. Yeah. And Nolan seems to be more associated with your average yeah. soldier. He seems to support them when they're in trouble. He seems to want to help them. They seem to see him as a man who represents them. Yeah. As a result, if he was at fault, the movie kind of the whole basis of the movie falls yeah. down. So I think that's why they kind of try yeah, to they make build him up. They build him up more than he perhaps would be if you were going to be critical. Mm. But if your agenda is to make kind of a a social movie that criticizes the elite and the rulers of the kind of the military and our our conflicts and the wars that we go on, then you need to be so like on his side. Yeah. So that's why I think they do that. So it's for a purpose. Uh, it's not yeah. just done randomly. Yeah. Uh, and then the other key thing is uh, Mrs. Dorbley does not have an affair with. Oh, Mark there's Cargan. that fun- fascinating bit, isn't it? Um, that for me was bizarre. You had this serious movie going on where you could see it's a serious critique of the British Empire and war and social uh, class pomposity, and then you get this. Inc- almost slapstick bit where Mrs. Dorbley, who's really bloodthirsty and desperate to see people being, see the war, she has this sort of slapstick sex scene with Lord Cardigan, who's got his corset on, they take their corsets off and all the rest of it. And it's just weird. It's bonkers. Um, so, it, as far as I'm concerned, the movie is going trying to be black and white, and as a result, yeah. it's hyperbolically so. Yeah. Uh, which kind of causes this issue. And then the divide between the kind of serious anti-war rhetoric and then the kind of farcical uh, almost python-esque comedy that's happening throughout it's a bit too much there are no vast tracks well I suppose there are that but anyway carry on (laughs) (laughs) it it just befuddles the brain it befuddles I was befuddled so did you enjoy watching it well apart from the fuddling it was something that I enjoyed with my head rather than my heart honestly by the end of it, I kind of wanted to, it to end. But if I was doing an essay on public attitudes, changing attitudes to the British Empire, if I was interested in the way that filmmaking has developed and the different things that people tried and that they particularly tried in the 60s in terms of social comment and social protest, then it's a very interesting movie. So if I'm interested in those things, I'd definitely recommend this movie. Is it successfully satirical for you? It is... Very clearly satirical. It is impossible to miss the point. Tony Richardson holds you down with your head underwater and hits you with a stone for two and a half or two hours or whatever it is. If you don't get the, didn't get the point, you know. Washington's? Washington's, yes. Oh, yes, Washington's. You're not drinking champagne, you can't. You know, I mean, it really beats you over the head. So, I guess this, this is where my confusion is. I feel like it is satirical, if not too much. Um, it does convey its anti-war message relatively successfully. So I've been thinking, yes, yes. But is it entertaining? No. Mm. And is it kind of too divided along these lines and it's a little bit of a mess? Yes. Is it interesting? Uh, I would certainly recommend it to anyone if they wanted to look into this event or kind of see a counter perspective. Uh, Especially if you have seen the Errol Flynn version that was made in the 30s, which pays no attention to history and is just this kind of rip-roaring adventure. Yeah, it very clearly doesn't do that. Okay, so let's score it, Wolf. Should we score it as quality as a film first? Yes, what did we say? Five. Five. So we're going to score it five because it's interesting... But, to be honest, that's a spectacle. I'm probably never going to watch yeah. it again. Okay, fine. And there's no desire for me to watch it in the cinema. Yeah. That, for me, is a test. Do right. I want to see it on the big screen? Yeah. Master and Commander? Yes. Yes. Of course. Charge of Light Brigade? Not on a small screen. <laughs> right. Okay. Never again. Never again. Okay. And historical accuracy? Are we saying 
Seven, seven, you've gone into halves. Are we allowed to go okay. into halves? Uh, are we saying... 7.32. I mean, David, don't <laughs> Are we be going silly. digital? No, okay. Uh, seven or eight, come on, choose. Choose, 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 choose. From what I've told you, what yeah. do you think? Ah, oh, no, you're not allowed to do that. It's your film. <laughs> I mean, I want to say... So you want to say. You're free uh, okay, eight. I'm going to say seven. I think I'm going to go for eight. Mm, I'm going to go for seven. The, mm, the, no, eight. Eight, okay, because, let's go eight. Let's, let's go, eight. go eight, let's go eight. Because basically it tells it's, the story in a pretty yeah, good way. Actually, if you want to know the pros and cons of whether why they chose the wrong direction, it's pretty good for that, isn't it? Yeah, and they and they tend not to complicate yeah. it at the end by saying, well, was it successful? Yes. Because actually, it, relative, yeah. relatively speaking, it was more than we remember. So it's yeah. at least a historical event that we should retroactively think about and go, it shouldn't have happened. It was a little bit of a disaster, but we made something out of it. And uh, I've even seen a study where they kind of did a test. And if they had gone down the alternative route, right. which was the original call, they perhaps would have lost more men right. in the other conflict. So let's have the roundup from A Man for All Seasons. Thank you, me. One of the consequences of bringing charge forward was regrettably that there was only one week's debate on A Man for All Seasons, which is a real shame. In fact, as I write this, I'm switching backward and forward to Facebook to carry that debate on. Anyway, the facts first, the numbers. I do like a nice statistic. Is there any problem, could I ask, that could not be solved by a good spreadsheet? If only spreadsheets had been available to Thomas Cromwell, we'd all be sorted. Quite rightly, most of you who had seen the film loved it, if 58% qualifies as most, which I think it does. Which is good, because I love it too. For Vincenza, this was the film that inspired her to study the Tudors at degree level, and I think it's inspired me and many others. Almost all the rest of you felt the film was good, though only two of you put it in your top ten, which maybe reflects the theatrical and slightly earnest feel. Quite a lot of you had not seen it and wanted to, some of you equally hadn't seen it and, well, yeah, probably got something better to do, actually. My own flesh and blood in the form of my brother pointed out that our expectations for cinematic quality have changed since the 60s, which is a fair point. But nobody had the courage to agree with me that theatre is the greater art form, probably because you're mature, well-adjusted adults who realise they're just different rather than fanatical spreadsheet lovers. In common with quite a few people, though, Jeannie felt the play was every bit as good as the film and recommended it. The debate was actually amazing. One of the reasons for that is that Thomas More, whoa, Thomas More is still a controversial figure. That's not just for the manner of his death. Cathy notices influence on Richard III's reputation. For some of you, though, like Caroline and William, More is a rather negative figure, compromised by his hard stance towards heretics and involvement in the power politics of court. For others, whatever the motivations, it was his courage that mattered. Juan and Dave both reflected it's good to have examples of people before us who are prepared to defy a tyrannical state for their principles. Though, both of us agreed we'd have signed and crossed our fingers rather than do what Moore did. That issue that Wolfe raised of the relative weight of Moore's responsibility towards his conscience or towards his family was repeated and picked over many times. And maybe the continuing ambivalence towards Moore is why some of you started a mixed feelings category to which eight of you signed up, though in future we'll have less of that democratic new question stuff. So really, it's quite a ding-dong out there. At very least, Moore's life remains interesting and relevant to us. Also, Gareth reminded me of something that sometimes gets rather lost, which is Moore and his confidence in and championing of the importance of law. So, good shout, Gareth. But you also loved it for the quality of the cast and the portrayals of the characters. Rob, 
did a list of the great actors in the in the film that we've loved for many other roles since. It's an amazing lineup, and we then got stuck into a discussion of how artists like Bolt Zimmerman and, of course, Hilary Mantel have affected the reputation of these people. Rob related Cromwell's depiction to his experience of modern top civil servants, suggesting there's not as much difference as you might think. Lisa and Victoria made the point that however sympathetic a picture Mantel has painted of Cromwell, in the end he was also capable of having people killed. For many, the conversation gave us a chance to agree with Deborah that Mark Rylance's performance in Wolf Hall was just brilliant. I love Cheryl's comment, though, that we do tend to try and pigeonhole people. In the end, all these people were many things, maybe all things. More could be both fanatic, narcissist and warm-hearted family man and brilliant scholar. Cromwell was both convinced reformer and statesman and cold-hearted killer. Anyway, I must stop. Thank you so much for the debate. It was great. We loved all your comments. On the less um, philosophical issues... William wondered at Wolfe's refusal to challenge my truism that Robert Plant is the world's greatest musician and assumed that the reason for that was a lack of familiarity with the great Zepp's oeuvre. Wolfe has contacted his solicitors and has made a prepared statement on the charge of the Light Brigade episode. Back then, to the old David and Wolfe for now. Just before we finish and we go to Alfred, he's got a poem he wants to talk about. In terms of the individual, Nolan obviously dead as a dodo, what happens to the rest of them? Lord Lucan is sent back to England. Right. I'm pretty sure he's relieved of his command by Lord Raglan relatively quickly. He's returned to England. Um, he is con- he considers asking for a court martial. Right. But then he decides, I think, to why because he wants to clear his name. Sort of to thing. clear his name, I think he writes maybe for the newspaper, but he definitely goes before I think the Houses of Parliament, and uh, he essentially does this big speech to the officials and I guess to the public as well, and gets himself off he essentially is able to say it wasn't his responsibility yes the heavy brigade didn't follow all this kind of stuff that he didn't do and the order was given by him but it was miscommunicated and he puts a lot of the blame on nolan who is now dead and doesn't have a voice Mm -hmm. and he was not an established yes he wasn't a member of the assumption two things about lord lucan incidentally first of all the executioner uh, that's what I heard he was called the executioner because uh, because in in Ireland during the height of the potato famine he basically chucks people off the land because either he's doing a whole lot of agricultural reform which I don't know might be a good idea in the long term or not but at the time of the famine was frankly inhuman uh, and also I think he's the ancestor of the Lord Lucan that disappears isn't he next uh, what else who else uh, Cardigan. Lord, Lord Cardigan takes no blame he says he follows orders right. he gets promoted right um, and then, obviously, kind of Lord Ragland dies, and the legacy of the event is kind of immortalised by Tennyson. Right. Uh, his poem goes to the men on the front lines. Yeah. Everybody reads it, and everybody remembers it to this day. It's taught in GCSEs throughout yeah. school, etc. Um, and that's really our defining image: this tragic event that happened, yeah. but this overwhelming kind of courage these men possessed, and uh, something to be Homage. in awe of. Yeah. Um, and in terms of the war, I mean, I thought some of the th- interesting things around the Crimean War that it prompted, that um, it's such a senseless war. You know, you think of the Crimean War as pure power politics. And it's interesting in that it makes the British Army realise that they've got a lot of work to do. And there's this big uproar about how reforms need to be implemented and reforms are implemented. It changes the nature of great war politics. So you've had this period of peace after the Treaty of uh, the Congress of Vienna, partly because the, because the Congress of Vienna was sensible and tried to reach an accommodation that could last, as opposed to the Treaty of Versailles, which was about punishing Germany. But this kind of breaks that period of 
cooperation to a degree. And after that, you know, you get the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. It begins to break down a little bit. But it's very influential in a sense. This seemingly pointless war does lead to a lot of changes. Florence Nightingale, army reform, and so on. Certainly. War reporting changes... And Absolutely. starts to come in, and they have to start to put uh, restrictions on it as well. That's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, to make sure that information isn't being given out that enemies can read. Yeah. And I think the public's general perception of what the military is doing starts to alter as they realise that their friends, family, etc., are off fighting in these conflicts, and they kind of. Yeah, it's really interesting to be aware of what's going on. Before the war, there's this incredible jingoism yes, we must fight, we must protect the poor old Turk and then after the war there's this horror at what, what's happened and it's interesting the, the everyman all the way up to the Queen wants some answers yeah. about what's going on yeah. and thinks that this is pretty senseless yeah. ok Alf is ready um, he is ready to speak to us Three, two, one. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward. All in the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade. Was there a man dismayed? Not, though the soldier knew someone had blundered. There's not to make reply. There's not to reason why. There's but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered, stormed at with shot and shell, boldly they rode and well, into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell rode the six hundred. Flashed all their sabres bare, flashed as they turned in air, sabring the gunners there, charging an army while all the world wondered, plunged in the battery smoke, right through the line they broke, Cossack and Russian reeled from the sabre stroke, shattered and sundered. Then they rode back, but not the 600. Cannon to right of them, cannon to left of them, cannon behind them, volleyed and thundered, stormed at with shot and shell, while horse and hero fell. They that had fought so well came through the jaws of death, back from the mouth of hell, all that was left of them, left of 600. When can their glory fade, O oh, the wild charge they made? All the world wondered. Honour the charge they made, honour the light brigade, noble 600. Okay, there we go. Alf, well done, Alf. That's a good piece of work. Oh, he's gone, he's gone again. He's gone. Ah, he's, gone. he's left us there. Pleasure. He'd like to say thank you to everybody. Okay, that is enough for one week. Hope we don't get sued. Hope <laughs> we don't get sued. Um, uh, that's enough for one week. So next time it will be Braveheart. Have you recovered, David? No, not yet, really, honestly. Okay, so uh, goodbye, everyone, from me. And goodbye from me. Are you not entertained? 